know the why human trafficking work is needed to fight for the freedom of modern day slaves. But love, passion, commitment isn't all you need to be an effective and successful anti-trafficking advocate. Learn the how. I'm Dr. Celia Williamson, Director of the Human Trafficking and Social Justice Institute at the University of Toledo. Welcome to the Emancipation Nation podcast, where I'll provide you with the latest and best methods, policy, and practice discussed by experienced experts in the field so that you can cut through the noise, save time, and be about the work of saving lives. Welcome to the Emancipation Nation, episode 144. I'm Dr. Celia Williamson, and today I'm going to be talking to Matthew Clark. He has a career in computing and data analysis, including academic, commercial, and not-for-profit. He's a senior lecturer in computer sciences, as well as the head of a software development company. But his passion lies in social change, which includes various roles in international development agencies and cross-cultural peacemaking in South Africa. He's spoken internationally about the relationship between faith and technology and is about to publish his second book, which focuses on transformative effects on mercy. Matthew's involvement with international development led to an interest in a growing market for the online sexual exploitation of children. That led Matthew and his wife, Annabella, to start the Freedom Keys Research Project, which investigates the gap between what's already being done to end human trafficking and what still needs to be done. Matthew is the principal researcher for that project and recently published an article on perpetrator-centric approaches to end human trafficking in the Journal of Human Rights Practice. And that's why he's here today. He's going to talk about the four P's of anti-trafficking work, prevention, protection, prosecution, and partnership, and how agencies do and do not focus on the traffickers or perpetrator-centric approaches. So welcome, Matthew. I'm glad to see you back on the podcast again. Hey, thank you, Celia. It's uh, nice to talk to you again. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about, you've been focused in the, the last few years on perpetrators of human trafficking. Why are you focusing there? Um, yeah, we started a few years ago. Once I uh, understood the the growing nature of some forms of um, abuses and exploitation that come under that broad banner of modern slavery or human trafficking, I started thinking, well, what's making the problem so intractable? Why, after all of the work that's been done in the last 20 years, uh, and really huge amounts of resources, people and time and money and thousands of organisations trying to um, bring dent the problem, bring it to an end or reduce it, um, have made some impacts. But in general, the problem's still there. And so what's, what's missing from our strategies? What other things could we be trying in the next 20 years so that was the, the focus of my early questioning. Um, and I spent a couple of years just networking and listening and understanding what was being done at the moment and trying to see what's, what gaps there were in, our, in the anti-trafficking movement's overall strategies. And I thought, well, the, uh, the real aim of trying to bring trafficking to an end requires us to change the behaviours of traffickers. We, we want them to stop doing what they're doing. And what can we do to bring that about? Well, rescuing victims doesn't change the behaviour of traffickers. 
And however important rescuing victims is, it still leaves this uh, important piece of the whole system untouched. So the prosecution aspect um, does try to deal with the, the um, perpetrators, the traffickers, the people who are gaining from other people's suffering. Um, but it's a fairly limited strategy which says put the bad guys in jail and hopefully the problem will go away. And I don't think that's a really complete solution. So I started thinking, well, what do we actually know about traffickers? And it turns out not very much. Um, there's not a huge amount of research or um, well-documented cases that help us understand the demographics of traffickers, um, what their socioeconomic background is, how many of them were victims themselves. It's, we're starting at a bit of research around that area. Um, what do they think they're doing? And again, there's a little bit of research there. Um, you did an, an, a podcast with Austin Choi Fitzpatrick, and he did some wonderful work in India and published a book called What Traffickers Think. And, and that's a really valuable resource. But that was just in one context of a particular type of slavery in India. Uh, we need to repeat that kind of uh, um, research across all the varied forms of slavery and all the varied contexts we find it, the, the sexual exploitation, the labour exploitation in all different cultures that all have their own idiosyncrasies that make slavery slightly different in that context than others, so that we can, can get into the mind of traffickers with the view that we want to change their, their motivational structure so that they don't do it anymore. Mm -hmm. um, so that's that's the brief background. There's more to say on all of those the things I've touched on there. It's a it, it's a, a big topic, and I think it's something that uh, is a, is a gap in the anti-trafficking movement worldwide that we don't know enough about traffickers, and we don't then try to intervene in ways that will effectively change trafficker behaviour, except for the threat of putting them in jail. And that's I think it's questionable whether that is as much of a deterrent as we wish it was. Yeah, I think in you're in Australia and in the US here, we some of us believe in stiff and swift and sure punishment as a deterrent. And what we come to learn is that when underground economies are at work, um, that that stiff and that swift and that sure deterrent isn't really a deterrent. It might be a deterrent for that person that actually goes to prison. But it really doesn't do much to affect the underground economy and the, the people participating in that economy. So I think your idea of working inside out, how can we learn what who they are, what their motivations are? What I mean, what did you take a look at when you did this research? Uh, so uh, our research is primarily research into anti-trafficking strategies rather than research into trafficking. So we don't have uh, first-hand field experience ourselves. We rely on, on uh, reading other people's research and partnering with other groups that do have field presence. Uh, so uh, we're trying to gather meta information, if you like, about that meta-analysis of things that are already known and just asking people uh, who are doing the frontline work what they've um, experienced. Uh, I did a survey of anti-trafficking organisations around the world, the Polaris database of um, uh, anti-trafficking organisations has more than 2,000 groups in it, and I sent an email to all, all of them. got 147 replies. I was asking them about um, 
their strategic planning processes about how they went about assigning their resources and thinking about their theories of change, uh, I tried to find out uh, what balance those four Ps had in people's perceptions of, of how to deal with trafficking. And in particular, I, I asked about what role perpetrators played in their theory of change. Uh, so we had um, uh, responses from 147 anti-trafficking organisations around the world, and I was asking them mostly about their uh, strategic planning processes, how they developed their theory of change and how they allocated resources, which of the four Ps they most emphasised in their work. And um, I was interested to, to find out that um, only about a quarter had any position or role for traffickers or other perpetrators. I use the word perpetrator as a more broad term than trafficker because there's a whole pile of different people involved in the abuse and exploitation that comes under that umbrella term trafficking. It's not just the person who does the trafficking, it's the, the demand side who's, who's uh, paying for the, the uh, abuses. It's the middlemen, it's the whole hierarchy if it's organized. Um, so per by perpetrator, I mean anyone who's benefiting from the abuse and exploitation of, of somebody else. Um, so they are generally missing from organisational strategic planning. And, but nevertheless, more than half of the respondents said that their organisation does in fact engage with perpetrators in one form or another. So they don't have a great um, pre, uh, what's a premeditated idea on what they're doing when they're engaging with perpetrators. They don't deliberately allocate resources to it, but lots of organisations do in the course of what they're trying to do, engage, interact with, with perpetrators. And so that, that uh, reinforced to me that um, uh, there's not sufficient uh, emphasis on planning ahead of time. What would we say to a trafficker if we met them? And yet it does happen quite a bit within within a broad spectrum of, of uh, organisations' day-to-day activities. Uh, so it seemed to me then that it would be worth sitting back and saying, well, what different strategies could be used if there is opportunity to engage with traffickers? And then the, the two aspects that seem most... Well, th there's, there's sort of three stages in the lifestyle where you could intervene. There is the stage before someone becomes a trafficker, and that's the preventative side, what could be done to reduce the vulnerability of people becoming traffickers? And the, the concept of vulnerability we use a lot in this space with relation to victims and, and survivors. How do we reduce people's vulnerability to being exploited? But by and large, the same ideas can be applied in parallel to the people who do the exploitation. What, what makes puts them in a position where abusing another person seems a legitimate and meaningful uh, um, career path. <laughs> uh, and then what could we do to derail that so it doesn't happen in the first place? How could we reduce people's vulnerability? Well, we have to understand, well, what makes them vulnerable? Um, what is it that causes them to tend towards the possibility of getting involved in tra trafficking and then somehow redirect that? So that's the, the, the one early stage. The, then there's a middle stage when people have started being involved in trafficking and that body of people is hard to access. 
it, it, it's hard to walk up to someone and say, hey, you a trafficker, I'd like to talk about it with you. Um, <laughs> so accessibility is a problem, and that's partly why we have such low quantity and quality of data about traffickers. Um, but but if you could, if, if you did meet those people, well, what what could you say, what could you do that might change their motivational structure? And by motivational structure, I mean both their internal motives, their their um, narcissism, their greed, their lack of empathy, whatever's going on internally, the psychology, but also the external drivers. What are the socioeconomic factors that maybe they're very poor themselves? We, we don't really know enough to, to make broad judgments. And in each case, it might be different. But what are the external drivers that have got them into a position where they're doing what, they, what they're doing? So there's interaction, inter, intervention that could happen there and then at the third stage when people have been um, arrested convicted of some trafficking offense and are maybe in jail or they're on some register uh, what can we do at that point to reduce recidivism rates and that's another area where we don't have much data we don't know how many people after their trafficking uh, offense has led to some incarceration or, or other consequences how many then just return to what they're doing? We don't know. That's not, not hasn't been measured. But we can perhaps assume that it's a fairly high recidivism rate, that people uh, don't get changed while they're in prison because there's literally no one that I've found who's doing rehabilitation work in prison with people convicted of trafficking offences. So that's a third area where we could intervene, where there's a point where we've got people, um, a captive audience, literally, uh, at, a, at a point of vulnerability in their life where we could perhaps um, help them to understand things differently so that when they leave, they no longer victimise people themselves. So you save all their future victims and also they might, on, on some occasions, become your advocates to go back to their community and try to convince their peers to, to change their ways as well. Hey, before we continue the episode, I want to let you know of three courses I offer. Effective Case Management with Human Trafficking Survivors, the TNT Survivor Journey Groups, and the Best Life Human Trafficking Prevention course for girls that are at risk. Raising awareness around human trafficking is a great start. Hanging up flyers, having fundraisers, doing human trafficking presentations, or even joining an anti-trafficking coalition or commission or student group. But it simply isn't enough. If you or your group aren't touching the lives of survivors or those at risk in meaningful, in healing ways, you're missing a critical component. I want you to get back to the reasons you joined the anti-trafficking fight in the first place. The reason you joined that coalition or that commission or that student group. You wanted to make a difference, but maybe you didn't know exactly what to do and so presentations seemed doable. Why? Because you had the knowledge and skills to do it. Well, if you're really ready to get directly involved and help change the lives of others for the better, then this is an important message for you. I have almost 30 years experience working with survivors and studying the issue, and I'm circling back to help you become effective and confident in your ability to work with survivors of commercial sexual violence. I wrote a few books, developed some courses that would love to train you on how to be involved directly. 
Just go to my website, CeliaWilliamson.com and check out my webinars. Learn a little more about how you can become knowledgeable and skilled to actually work with survivors using my trauma-informed courses. And now, on with the podcast. I love, I love the way your brain works because I can just see it working in a very strategic and structured way. Instead of, you know, speaking to the perpetrators, you're using the literature, going across the literature, looking at that, and then looking at our four P's approach, and then applying it to the actual agencies who are doing the direct service work. Are we even focused in that area? And many times we're not. Um, but if we were to be focused in that area, then there are different approaches for somebody, you know, before they even get started. I love that you say who's vulnerable to this, because I think that's a very non-judgmental way of seeing these pre-perpetrators, if you will, mm. as, as people who have potential to do something else. And then looking yes. at people who are already involved and then post-conviction. So three different uh, people along that continuum. Um, do you have any like preliminary ideas about approaches for these uh, different groups? Uh, yeah, yeah, we have some. Uh, we are really hoping that we can d develop some ideas further and then run some pilot studies. That That's uh, where our research is heading. We're still in that ideation phase at the moment. Um, but uh, if you think about prevention, for instance, um, one, one point to make is that um, uh, in the same way, Terminology is important, and we've we've learnt um, that it's not really helpful to label people as victims because that places a, a boundary identifier on them, where actually they're people who have been um, abused, exploited in some way, coerced. They've been victimised, and a lot of them are, have survived that. And so it's uh, it's more productive to talk about them as people to whom things have been done, and they've been able to respond in certain ways. That gives them back agency. In the same way, um, you try to avoid using the, the the term perpetrator, and I always fall back into it because it's just it's easier. Or tra trafficker, because they also are people. They're, they are people with with moral agency that, in many cases, have be, become lost or corrupt or degraded. Um, but they make choices. They can be held to account. They can change. Um, most of them. They're, we we would think that uh, there are some extreme sociopathic personalities who have no empathy for other people and perhaps could never be taught that. So there might be some um, some quantity, you know, some percentage of, of people who who aren't going to change. Um, but but the majority of people involved in trafficking, it's an it's assumption because we haven't been able to, to test it. The majority of people, if given other options and given some education and some maybe some psychology psychological counseling uh, might choose to take to take another path so if we think about that in the context of preventing people from being involved with trafficking in the first place the first question that comes to mind is um well what do we know about the circumstances of people prior to them becoming traffickers uh, and there is some evidence that a lot of them, a lot of 
traffickers were themselves victims. So anything that you can do to prevent people from becoming victims will prevent them going down the path to later becoming traffickers. So that's one style of intervention. There's also some growing evidence that a lot of traffickers come from the same community and the same culture and socioeconomic background as the people that they exploit. They're, they're sitting side by side in the same community, suffering the same problems. So interventions which might reduce victim vulnerability uh, may also be effective in reducing trafficker vulnerability, um, alleviating their poverty, giving them better education, um, better health outcomes and, and, and better career prospects. So, so there's, uh, there's interventions there that are probably quite in alignment with what we've already been doing, um, but just slightly retargeted to, to, the, to the people who, who are potentially traffickers. Uh, we saw one interesting um, course being run by some people in Fiji. Um, they were running a program with um, Fijian villages to try to reduce the abuse of, uh, of young girls. There was a high uh, rape culture and um, a devaluing of girls within the, the village context. And they were running programs with school children. And part of that program, and it, it was aimed to, to raise people's uh, awareness of the problem and to try to encourage boys in particular and young men to stand on the side of girls rather than becoming abusers. And one of the, the themes or the motifs that they used was the idea of uh, when you grow up, are you going to be a warrior who stands and defends the girls in your village or are you going to be a wolf who preys on them? Oh, interesting. So that idea of who do you want to become? Do you want to become a warrior or a wolf? And maybe warrior has its own down negative um, images because it's a violent sort of image as, as is being a predator. But, but something like that, to call youth into a vision of who they can become and to say, what type of person will you be, will you be proud of in the future? Um, maybe you can make some, some money by selling a village girl that you know into prostitution or, or by running a business where your workers aren't, aren't paid anything because you forced them to work for you. But is that the kind of person that you want to be? Is, is that the true humanity? Is that the best we can draw out of you? Um, or is there something else that you could become which you're prouder of in which you, you flourish, but you don't flourish at the cost of somebody else's suffering? Maybe there's a way that you can help build a society where everybody can flourish. Mm, I love that. Is have you, When you were talking to these agencies, these organizations, was anybody doing anything with those that were already involved or those post-conviction or anything going on in the prisons? I heard you say you didn't find anything in the prisons happening, going on or... I haven't found anything in the prisons. Now, there, there are a lot of rehabilitation programs in, in prisons, um, uh, but none that I'm aware of that are particularly targeted to people in there for trafficking offences. And you, and you need to tailor those rehabilitation um, programs for the particular crime and the particular people's personality. 
So it's important to understand what crime they committed and why they committed it and a bit about their own background in order to uh, customise some interventions in prison to, to challenge their assumptions and to help them see things in a different way. So some of the general purpose prison rehabilitation programs uh, might uh, include people who have been convicted of trafficking offences, but there's no one who specifically arranged their program to, to engage with that type of prisoner. Uh, part of that is that the, the prison numbers are fairly low, so getting a, a group of people in one prison who you could run a program with uh, from trafficking uh, offences in most parts of the world, that's really hard because there's only one or two people um, convicted of those offences. The, the numbers of, of people who are successfully prosecuted around the world are in the, in the low thousands. Um, and that, in my mind, is one pointer that the prosecution angle is never going to be effective because it doesn't effectively scale up. We've got a huge problem with, with uh, tens of millions of, of um, people being abused and coerced, and, and that probably means that there's millions of people doing the abusing and coercing, um, and if we're only getting several thousand convictions each year, then there's no way that we can put enough money in the, and resources into to law enforcement and prosecution processes and uh, jail facilities to um, to deal with the numbers. But if they do get into, into prison, yeah, we need to adjust our, our rehabilitation expectations and programs to deal with that specific type of crime. Well, and so I go back then to the programs um, when they do engage perpetrators or traffickers, what do you see them doing with them? Yeah, uh, mostly it seems that that their engagement with traffickers is ad hoc. It sometimes it just happens, and and they don't know what to do, and they'll have some conversations and perhaps not be able to uh, engage at all. Um, there there are some that you you may be aware of in the area of, of um, sex trafficking. There are certainly some uh, programs that try to deal with the demand side. And that's one part of the perpetration um, structure. So there are groups which uh, walk the streets talking to Johns. There are there are John schools to try to re-educate people who are generating the demand for for coerced sexual services. Um, that's that's a an important aspect. The the demand side certainly needs to be addressed um, in in a similar type of way as the traffickers themselves. There's a need for education, there's a need for understanding what those people think they're doing and how do they rationalise or justify to themselves their, their actions in a way that they can go away not feeling um, morally corrupt themselves. Uh, how do they convince themselves that they haven't done any damage or that it was worthwhile in, in some regard? So, so yeah, John Schools, I think, is an important, important part that people are already working on. Um, but by and large, the the organisations I've talked to um, don't have a specific program for engaging with traffickers. It just sometimes happens and they make it up as they go along. Yeah. And so we can't really, if we look at this issue strategically, we we know we can't arrest ourselves out of this problem. But we're also not attending to the demand side and the people involved in perpetrating this crime as much as we are 
with the supply side or with the survivors. So how do we even think, remotely think, mm. that we are headed in a direction of ending this problem? So I, I agree with you. We need to think broadly and, and have as many different angles to work on as possible. Yeah. Um, I, I think one of the, the things that we don't do well enough within the anti-slavery, anti-trafficking movement is applying systems theory to understand the complexities of that system. So in a systems theory approach, you would identify who all the actors are and then look at mapping the interaction between those actors and try to see how um, how things flow through that system, how money flows, how um, people flow from one role to another, how the organisations that are um, involved in law enforcement, what impact do they have? If they increase presence in an area, what's the, on, what's the flow on effect? And in systems theory, you then start to see that there are positive flow on effects that you make a change here and that causes something else to change and the ripple effect gives you the final outcome that you're hoping for. But there are also feedback loops where a one change causes another change that actually reinforces the thing that you originally changed in either a positive or a negative way. Mm -hmm. uh, there's been a couple of attempts to, to apply that sort of systems thinking to trafficking, but, um, but I think we could benefit from that a lot more um, because once you start looking at that whole system, you can then ask the question, well, where is it possible to intervene as a as an organisation that's part of the system, law enforcement or an NGO or, or some service organisation, uh, where is it possible to try to tweak the system to jog it out of its equilibrium position? Because systems always try to seek equilibrium. And you can make a law harsher, but there'll be consequences to that with the system will try to adjust itself to undermine the effectiveness of the harsh law slightly rearranging things so that that, that intervention becomes um, uh, um, neutralized. It will go back to its original and familiar equilibrium pattern. It reminds me of, you know, when the way we used to see uh, people in distress, you know, if they were A, you know, they'd come to our counseling session, they'd lay on the couch, they'd tell us all about it, B is our intervention, and then C, they get better. So it was very linear, ABC, and we had no yeah. concept that every person is involved in a system, whether it's their community, their mm. environment, their family, a bunch of systems. And if you could mag magically fix this person, when you sent them back home to their system, <laughs> the system would break them and take them back yep. to where they. And so now yep. we kind of picture it like a star. I picture it like a star if the audience can follow that. So if I pull on A, if I do something with A, mm -hmm. one point of the star, guess what? The point that I've labeled C and D and B are going to move because I moved A. And so that's kind of what, if we define the problem, it's not just the individual, but as a system, then we can think about ways we can permeate or intervene in that system. And, you know, years ago, we used to think 
girls, for instance, ran away from home because there was dysfunction in the home and they had some individual pathology and they ran away and they got themselves involved in prostitution. And so because that was the way we defined the problem, the solution was counseling because you have some individual pathology. Mm. Now we start to see, oh, there's a system of the supply, the victims, the demand, the customers, there are perpetrators. And so now how do we intervene? And then we come up with brilliant people like you that start thinking in terms of systems and how we can intervene in those ways. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm picking up what you're laying down. So <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. And so if, if you think in that systems theory way, then you understand that there are lots of places where you could intervene. And then you have to sit and think, well, if I did do that intervention, what parts of the star would change? And is that really going to give the positive result that, that we want at the end? And so we can then theoretically try to think what the most likely, uh, what intervention is most likely to give the effect that we want. But then, of course, uh, well, two, two points from that. One is you see that there are lots of places that you could intervene. And what I've been um, focusing on is is the the fact that very few people see intervention at the trafficking point um is a is a it's not a well-traveled path it's it's an area that we haven't investigated the investigate the interventions but the second point is that once you've got that theoretical understanding you, you of course then have to test it and uh and so you need to do some um some pilot interventions and watch to see what effect they have so that you don't just keep doing something which has a negative feedback loop that has does more damage than it does good. You've got to be able to adjust your interventions. Um, so I would be hoping that over the next few years, more people would get inspired about attempting to understand and engage traffickers and report back what they did and what, it, what its outcome was so that we can learn from each other and gradually refine the effectiveness of the interventions in that space of the system. So I think there needs to be a broad range of, of interventions across the whole system, law enforcement, uh, victim-oriented, um, and in terms of the, the underlying economic structures of things, uh, there's a lot of things need, need, to be, need to be done, but traffickers are, are the, the spot that I'm going to be spending my time focusing on to see if we can find effective levers for positive change that uh, that relate to the, the the traffickers role. Yeah. Well, thank you, Matthew, because I think you planted some seeds in people's minds to be creative, not just be working on one side of the equation all the time. Because even as good as you are getting out in those communities and changing, there is somebody in a negative feedback loop that's working just as hard to keep that equilibrium, keep things exactly the way they are. And so we need to be keeping that in mind. Anything that you want to share with somebody who's interested in studying perpetrators or working with traffickers, like anything that you'd like to share with them? Um, I'd like to put out a call for help. I, I, I'm <laughs> hoping that people get energized by this idea and say, yeah, yeah, maybe there's something that we can do in that space too. And the first thing we need is more data. So anyone who has um, engaged with perpetrators on the demand side, the supply side, whether they're called traffickers or, or something else, um, if you've got cases, case notes of, of that person's uh, background, psychology, motivations, 
what the outcomes were for them, that's really helpful. And of course, anyone who's got in more statistical information that, that uh, sheds light on um, the demographics of traffickers. And, and once again, I know trafficking is such a broad thing that, that, that there might be data in one particular culture and one particular form of exploitation that doesn't necessarily generalise to other areas, but somehow we need to collect as much data as we can so that we, we understand a bit more about uh, what the perpetrator side looks like. And then um, I'm hoping to generate a whole series of, uh, of roundtable discussions so that people can share ideas. And so if there's any organisations that think, yeah, we've got some resources and, and we see that as an important part of the solution to the problem, who want to engage as partners to try something new, that uh, if there's anyone in your audience who does prisoner rehabilitation work and would like to say, yeah, what, I wonder if we can adjust our course specifically for people in prison for trafficking offences, then let's let's talk to each other and we can we can see what can be done by sharing our resources to to test the effectiveness of, of interventions in that space. Absolutely. So if people are interested in this or learning more, uh, where can they get in touch with you? Uh, yeah, I'll give you my email address. The um, we the website that my wife Bella and I um, host is called Turning Teardrops Into Joy com, and they can find out all about us there. Um, but they could write to me at uh, Matthew with two T's dot c dot clark and clark's got an e on the end i always have to explain all these things you can't just i haven't got an easy email address anyway matthew dot c dot clark at gmail.com awesome thank you so much matthew i appreciate you spending time and thank you for the work that you're doing it's not popular work but it's critical work yeah thanks uh, celia and it's been great talking and uh I'm always impressed with the, the range of people you get on your podcast and the, the amount of work that you do. Blessings on you. You, you do such amazing work to, um, to keep the ideas circulating and to challenge people to think in new directions. So thanks a lot. That was Matthew Clark, Brilliant Mind. And so I love this quote. For every complex problem, there's an answer that is clear, simple, and wrong. <laughs> so. We need everyone. We need the engineers. We need the computer scientists. We need the people who do data analysis. We need the survivors. We need the sex work perspective. We need the social workers and the mental health professionals and the criminal justice and the healthcare professionals. We need all of the drops that create the ocean. We need all of them because it's a complex problem. It's going to require complex solutions. When people say, well, I want to get involved, but wow, this is just seems like a massive problem. Like I, I can't solve it. Well, it's because you're not meant to solve it. You're meant to contribute to it. And so we need all the drops to create the ocean. But if we're all creating a tidal wave, working on the issue of survivors with very few people over here trying to understand the motivations and why traffickers become traffickers and why they do what they do and what are the structures in place that prevent them from doing other things or that encourage them to do these things and how can we change the structure 
so that that's not attractive because there are other opportunities. All of those things. We need all of the flowers in the field to create the garden. So we need people thinking about this issue and working on the issue of trafficking from the trafficker side of things. Until next time, the fight continues. Let's not just do something, let's do the best thing. If you like this episode of Emancipation Nation, please subscribe and I'll send you the weekly podcast. Until then, the fight continues.